You're listening to the Footprint Coalition's Downstream channel. Today, we're talking about how technology can help make buildings and cities more resilient and more sustainable. Jack Dangermond has been working on solving the problem of how best to develop projects with the lightest footprint on the natural world since 1969. His company, the Environmental Systems Research Institute, or ESRI, is a multi-billion dollar business developing geographic information system software that captures and analyzes spatial and geographic data. The technology is used by half of the Fortune 500, most national governments, 20,000 cities, every state in the US and 7,000 universities. He and his colleague, Dr. Ryan Perkle, who heads ESRI's geodesign practice, are talking with Robert and Rachel about the technology behind the theories of geodesign. Welcome, sir. Nice to see you again. Um, so we're talking about geodesign today. And That's the great. concept of geodesign has been around for centuries. But of course, your work is really important and crucial to this field. So what's the big deal? Tell us the whole thing. You and I, all of us, all three of us know that our world is in trouble. Actually, if we look at climate change, we look at the loss of biodiversity, we look at the overpopulation of the world in many dimensions, uh, we got a lot of problems to solve. And geodesign is actually this amazing technology and also science platform that allows people to interactively design things on top of geographic science, uh, the science of our world. So geography is the organization of actually everything we know, all our biology, all of our hydrology, all of our climatology, all of our, <laughs> all of our population, all of our land uses. It's the thing that brings it all together. And uh, maybe 50 years ago, I had this interesting uh, revelation, I guess, uh, inspiration that if we digitized geography and put it into a database, we'd be able to overlay like plastic overlays maps and then understand geography so that we could do design work on top of this, uh, well, on top of uh, geographic science. Mm -hmm. And these big issues, uh, the ones that are, challenging us. I mean, COVID has been a big issue, right? But the challenges of climate change and loss of biodiversity, I mean, they are mission critical for all of us. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think Robert is, I, I want you to put one of those masks on and you know, use all of your best AI and, and uh, visualization technology to help designers. I mean, that's kind of the way I want to lead into this. And uh, so, yeah, te technology and science helping designers create a more sustainable future. That's, that's the big deal. Yeah. Uh, Brand Farron had made an introduction. We've had several conversations and we're exploring in the initial stages of where we could possibly overlap with what the Footprint Coalition is doing. But then COVID happened. And the easiest way for me to explain to the layman why ESRI is within them and around them and already something that they're utilizing is when those Johns Hopkins maps were coming up to... Uh, show us where it was spreading it was using your technology now i know that you also tend to open source and that you're not in the business of trying to have a monopoly on you know what and how you do but more than that forget my dumb question the origin story of how you came to be sitting where you find yourself at these crossroads of backstage at the world and the events right now, I think is fascinating. And would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Uh, well, I was in university at Harvard, you know, working in a, a lab in the basement, which invented some of the first computer map making tools. 
and uh, they, they fascinated me. I was studying landscape planning and city planning, regional planning, and uh, this idea of having digital maps that I could actually organize information with and then and use that as a platform for the design and planning work was basically an inspiration. When I left Harvard, I came back here to Redlands and it's just about uh, a couple hundred meters from here is our very first building. And there we started doing little consulting projects to help people locate uh, new towns or locate power plants or route transmission lines and roads or do environmental studies. And mm -hmm. these were projects one at a time with kind of homemade software. And uh, that, that, that was really the origins, Robert. But very gradually over the, over the first decade, we began to build methods and tools that would allow us to see things that normal people didn't by using digital means, bring all of these maps together and then make new kind of computer maps, mm -hmm. which would interpret the information. And I mean, jumping ahead so people can understand it, I mean, everybody goes to Starbucks and those are, it's not just by chance that those stores are located where they're at or Walgreens or Walmart or most retailers. They're because somebody analyzed geographically all the, all the social and economic factors that make them successful. Uh, so this, this GIS technology that we now ship in volume, there's millions of users, really brings geographic information together and allows people to do these manipulations and then um, see, see them. And COVID is something you're right. Everybody relates to that map. It's been now looked at over 2 trillion times. Billions of times every single day, people look at those maps and they wanna, it's like looking at the weather, you know, you wanna check out this horrendous thing that's happened to all of us and how it's spreading now in India, unfortunately. Uh, and they wanna know. Uh, and so I think of COVID as a big wave that's affected the world, but the, what people don't quite realize is that climate change is another, mm -hmm. is another, I think, bigger wave. I was talking to President Obama on Tuesday, and he now believes that climate change is the very biggest problem that's facing all of us. Mm -hmm. And the second problem, he said, is getting people to realize that, uh, that, that it's happening. You know, still in the U.S., we have uh, something like 35% of the population that don't agree. Uh, so... These kind of maps, uh, the visualization, uh, actually help people understand the spread of COVID very quickly. Half of the world's population saw that map, and they began to create a different context for a different kind of a reality by seeing the data and seeing it live, just like you see the weather. Mm -hmm. And we need, to, we need to stand up and get everybody to realize that these other big waves that are coming uh, are, are actually more impactful to our future. There's no, there's sort of no, people say there's no vaccine for climate change or for the loss of biodiversity. And my colleague and I work uh, fervently on this, uh, trying to get people aware of it. And so geodesign is not just mapping. Geodesign is taking these scientific layers of information and then equipping people who actually make geographic decisions uh, with the tools that allow them, for example, to preserve uh, open space or pick the right optimum location for things. Uh, uh, that's basically what it is. It's like sketching on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. except you overlay the little sketch on top of the layers of data and you understand the impacts of your idea, your plan. You know, how much is it going to cost? What is the environmental footprint? 
Um, is it compatible with the neighborhoods and the people who live in them? You know, it's not about you know, put, putting a freeway right through a particular neighborhood and ruining the neighborhood. Okay, this is, allows you to sketch out these ideas and understand the footprint of what human action is uh, beforehand. And that, I, I think, frankly, it's going to take people like the like the people that you play, actually, you know, who have all the best insights, all the best technology, all the best science, so that they can turn it around and we can begin to create a more sustainable future. Uh, it reminds me when you talk about waves. We uh, we helped. We made a grant to develop a marine heat wave tracker with uh, an organization called Aqualink. And they have a bunch of sensors in places to understand what the temperature is at depth. And then much like it happens in a terrestrial setting, you have ocean heat waves. And if they persist for too long, of course, you have coral die off and things like that. So is, is you know, from that step to the solution set, how do you find, you know, this geodesign tool being then implemented into people actually is it policy mainly is it you know what are the things that you then prompt folks to do once they know the issue designers often use paper and pencil they, they design sketches like when you're building a building mm -hmm. or when you're building a campus or when you're doing urban redevelopment in the city landscape planners do the same thing with plants and open space planning they, they do the design in fact all of us are really designers mm -hmm. we just don't think of ourselves as designers. We make little decisions about, uh, you know, which way we go to work or, or where we live or what kind of clothes we wear. Or all these things are conscious decisions that people make. And spatial designers, whether they are farmers planting things at the right location or uh, engineers or, or plan, you know, architects um, or, uh, uh, or people who rescue people in wildfires, you know, they're mm -hmm. all designing spatial things and so the the tools that we build are really about not only digitizing geography but also interactively then interacting with that data so that people can base their design on geographic understanding that's mm -hmm. the big idea yeah and you know i have a friend i think i'm not sure if you know him but his name is richard saul Werman. he started ted mm -hmm. you know ted talks he he often talks to me, says, you know, Jack, you're in the understanding business. Um, you're not in the technology business. And he then says, understanding precedes action. Right. So it's so, so insightful to me because by bringing this data together, you really understand how things are working in the natural world or in the, in the social world. And uh, it allows you to uh, then make better decisions that are more sustainable. And I mean, some... For example, out in Cape Cod, they're doing a big geodesign mm -hmm. process uh, project out on the shoreline there because, you know, sea level rise is happening and they need to know what to design to be able to address or be resilient in the context of mm -hmm. this change. And they're doing some green infrastructure like restoring marshlands. And they're also building some hard gray infrastructure in the way of, uh, you know, walls that will protect uh, flooding. So these are being done by people who have studied uh, the profession of design and engineering, and uh, they work in these big AEC firms or in cities or in counties or in, in different government agencies. So they're designers. They're geodesigners. Yeah. And actually, I'm from near there. The idea that, you know, the 
um, beach on the ocean side is really eroding and that people, you know, that some of that will create encroachment of like seawater into people's drinking sources and things like that. You know, it's really complicated. And when you see it on the ground with people who've spent their lives there and want to continue to live there, it's uh, it's a difficult prospect and you have to figure some a variety of solutions out. Well, speaking of solutions, I, I did want to say it. I want to thank William Miller. I'm sure there's been a lot of help. I got this little uh, light read binder on yeah. introducing geodesign, the concept. I would highly recommend that everybody find this. By the way, I'll be recycling this paper and uh, attempt to ingest it because really, Jack, you are at the bleeding edge. And I'm sure you would say you're standing on the shoulders of giants and also really standing shoulder to shoulder with Laura, your wife. And what blows my mind is that many of the people who can be the prime movers in this shift and change we need, it comes down to these very intimate dialogues and relationships with our life partners. And I just want to make sure uh, I would be remiss to not speak to and ask you to speak to how instrumental she has been and, and where you, the company, all of the conservation you're doing, these amazing projects that we're going to get to later, because like Bran was saying, the greatest invention of all time is when you take a large piece of land and say, don't touch it, i.e. our national parks. But first things first, please tell us as much as you, you can. We don't, you know, imagine we'll get it all, but please tell us about Laura and why she's been so integral to the whole uh, production. Wow, I met Laura when I was 16. We were walking down the hall at high school, and I just saw her. I just like this woman, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of like just physical beauty. I mean, she's beautiful, but I, there's something about her, and we just became friends. As uh, as you know, friendship is so darned important in life, and we have, I mean, mar marriages are ups and downs, relationships are ups and downs. But I, I think we just have had a commitment where we are partners, and friendship is really important there. So as we went to school, we supported each other. When we got out of school, we came back to Redlands. We didn't have any money, but we decided to start this little uh, company based on the, uh, the concepts that we got, got excited about back, uh, back east. So yeah, that, and then she runs about half of the organization. I run about half the organization. And we, um, you know, it's not perfect. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't suggest that people who are married go into business together. But on the other hand... Too late. You're talking to two people who are both in business with and side business with their partners. And so, but once it's your fate, there's many upsides. I, I really do believe, and I, I will say this for the record, I do not think there's another American couple that is giving back more and attempting to be more productive in the service they're providing to their community, their state, and the country at large than you and, and Laura are. And we'll, I'll give you proof positive on that a little bit later. But um, and sorry, I didn't mean to cut off. I think I think it was just funny because as you said that both Rachel and I were realizing that we did the, we're same, in the thing. same boat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, yeah, and it's important, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, we do a lot of things together and we remain good friends at this point in our life. And we talk about it now and then. It's so important to have a good relationship. And that means being committed to each other at some level. That's uh, what it's all about. But we've always had this idea of wanting to have a purpose in life, as I'm sure you guys do as well. It's, uh, 
it's meaningful. I mean, it's not just about showing up or playing golf or going to the river or going to the beach. It's about uh, finding some sense of meaning in your life. And for us, as we started and created and expanded this uh, company, it was about serving our users. At a particular moment, uh, you know, we have plenty of resources and money. We, we don't need money. Uh, except for the purpose of creating the organization that really supports all of our users. And we have, it's pretty hard to, uh, and I keep getting weirded out about it, there's something like 10 million of our users. You know, that we, <laughs> so we run this organization now. Uh, our colleagues here that uh, work here run it for the sole purpose of serving them doing their work better. Mm-hmm. In other words, we build great engineering tools and there are some magnificent people here that do it and their 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 excitement is that they can actually make a difference in their life by building tools that allow people to do geo design and to do geographic analysis and environmental analysis uh, and make the better in the world a better place and it's not it's not sort of some bs uh, phrase it's what really gets us excited uh, so we were able to really continue to control our destiny and so we are self-sustaining, self-governing, and uh, with the purpose of of advancing these tools that I think I think have. Uh, I mean, it's really important, Robert. This work that we do. Yeah. Yeah, and and environmentalism is kind of the underpinning of geo design for you. Like that's the main the thrust of the reason to do this work, right? Yeah. When we were in school, it was during the '60s, and you know, uh, there were all the big. Uh, environmental awareness was just coming out and uh, yeah it, Rachel Carson uh, mm-hmm. Paul Ehrlich the population bomb uh, there was a revolution you know with the military industrial complex going on here at the time uh, but we, uh, we we got hooked into it and then we had the great fortune of moving to quantitative work uh, computer work basically mm-hmm. quantitative geography and that just sort of really got us excited because we realized that you could actually uh, model and understand the world uh, in such an effective way that you. So we're, we're still trying to scale it up so that it has uh, an impact on the world like COVID has, the COVID maps have done. If we can, if we can accomplish that scale of impact on the rest of society about biodiversity and conservation planning and green infrastructure planning, then I think we will have been happy. Is there anything that's limiting you? Sorry, on the technology side, is there any are there any limits now that you've mentioned computation and you know things that have helped? Oh boy, we spend all of our money on trying to advance the tools, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is just keeping up with everybody else's technologies. Yeah. You know, the computing gets faster, uh, networks get faster uh, now uh, with the introduction of big databases and. AI and machine learning and faster visualization. We just keep pedaling, trying to make spatial thinking and spatial analysis and spatial visualization all work within the evolving stack of, uh, of technology. The, the, one of my good friends, Michael Goodchild, and I had a talk the other day saying, you know, Jack, compared to the old days, this is like 40 years ago, we've got so much data that used to be our constraint. We can do everything, but we don't have enough data. We have so much computing power. I used to spend our, <laughs> spend our allowance on computing. We don't have to do that anymore. And I mean, it's almost ubiquitous. And the software tools that are available and the UI, UX, you know, user experience is really becoming easy enough to where it's 
opening up to more and more like the like the like the Johns Hopkins map did. Uh, so what is the constraint? The constraint is people who really understand the power of this and also have an intention to really uh, turn it around. And if we talk about these great challenges, uh, we need people that really get it, that really understand it. Uh, I mean, once in a while, I experience executives sort of, they, they wake up, the lights go on in their heads, and it was so, so exciting to watch them because all of a sudden then they want to drive the race car, you know, like 90 miles an hour, boy, which is boy. so important. So uh, when we were talking with President Obama last week, you know, he talked about leadership and how important it is. That there are, it's like a pyramid of leaders that he's really trying to build for the world. Uh, you know, a few at the top that are already quite experienced in this massive middle ground, kids in university and coming out, starting in their career. And then there's the next level down, which is kids in, in, uh, in grade school. And I, I just totally related what he was saying about leaders, growing leaders. I need to grow people you know, that really understand spatial, spatial thinking and the application of um, integrating all the factors into being able to drive what decisions they make. And so uh, I'm really all about education. I know you are, uh, both of you guys are as well. So K through 12, I'm all in <laughs> with our tools. And, um, you know, universities, we have, I think, 11,000 colleges and universities that we support. And then, and then of course, our users, the ones who are really practicing. And it's just like a race, you know, like a race to be able to get these people. Because I know from the footprints of the work that they do, if they do it using science and technology and good data, just like, just like in COVID, I mean, picking the right place for vaccination, picking the right place for, for testing, this was a spatial thing. So we connected so that we uh, blew away sort of the, the, the racial equity issues. We target, you know, it's, yeah, okay, I'm rambling on. No, no, not at all. It's funny, you reminded me of uh, my, my friend Sherlock Holmes, data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. Um, and, you know, and as, as per usual, Rachel and I and our team, we're, we're going to, when the time is right and when it hits us, uh, we are going to come back around to you and figure out what is the highest impact project we could uh, join forces with you on. I want to make sure we leave some time to talk about geodesign's relationship to conservation of natural places. Uh, to me, I know it's so close to your heart and it's so much of where you focus your energy. Who is the best person to interact with on, on our mutual behalf, sir? Well, this gives me a great opportunity. You know, I'm a landscape architect, so I got sucked into this. Uh, <laughs> I still have landscape planning in my heart and soul. But my, one of my best friends and colleagues uh, is Ryan Perkle. Please bring him in. Ryan, join us. Join us, brother. Excellent. Thanks for having me. I've been uh, reading up on you, but I'm going to let the better mind kick off the Q&A. Yeah, we're so excited. Obviously, because we're in California, we're really pumped that you're focused on California's 30 by 30. But um, we want to tell us a little bit about that and, and like why 30% is an important and crucial number. Well, 30 by 30 rolls off your tongue a lot better than 26.6% by <laughs> yeah, 2027, true. right? Uh -huh. So that that's part of it, probably, right? 
But really, there's a consensus amongst the scientific community that 30 to 50 percent of the planet is needed to protect, uh, to be protected in order to preserve biodiversity. And when we're looking at our current protection efforts, they're simply not sufficient in preventing habitat and species decline to the degree that we need. Right now, for example, in our current circumstances, the scientific community estimates that there's as many as 150 species becoming extinct every day. And this is simply not sustainable. So 3030 is one of the things we can do to help. Mm -hmm. And California is one of these like 36 environmental hotspots as well, right? So it's a perfect place to think it about. It is. We're the front lines of species conservation across the globe. What constitutes a green infrastructure as it relates to conservation? Green infrastructure is really just simply a term used to describe open spaces like forests, prairies, wetlands, and rivers. But by calling it infrastructure, we're challenging people to think about it differently. We all know that we all value traditional infrastructure like roads, bridges, and buildings. So by thinking of the natural landscape as infrastructure, we're placing value on it, right? It's something that can be valued and planned for. And green infrastructure also serves a purpose. It cleans our air or water. It mitigates floods. It reduces coastal erosion. And more often than not, it does so better than human engineered systems in the traditional infrastructure. And we can do it cheaper, right? So green infrastructure is really just a key way to think about and to plan for conserving natural open spaces. How, how does it, you know, in, the, in this 30% model, I mean, do you have massive chunks of sort of conserved area or do you focus on as well sort of the green space that's integrated into communities where you have community gardens and parks and things like that? So in the case of California, for example, right, our state is approximately 100 million acres and really approximately 22 million acres of that would be protected to the level that would constitute 30-30 conservation goals. So the question then is really how do we close that 8 million acre gap? And we'll do it through multiple means, right? Some of those things might be actually repurposing federal designations from less stringent protection to more stringent protection for biodiversity protection. Some of the efforts might actually include making new federally designated areas, mm -hmm. as well as new state parks and those types of things. And it might also likely leverage the private land conservation community, where local landowners are actually electing to um, uh, integrate their land in the conservation planning through things like conservation easements and working with large conservation organizations as well. So it's really a combination of all of these different techniques that will comprise uh, that 30-30 total. How many more people who have the ability, such as Jack and Laura did, to be able to take 24,364 acres, such as they have at Point Conception, and say, we're going to do the best thing we could and leave it alone and make sure that it stays that way. What was speaking about leadership? I mean, you know, that really is it. So I know that I know that you guys work closely together. And what have you taken from Jack's leadership? Why does how does this inspire you? And what is it that we the the lay person can do to start really leaning into this kind of, of moral psychology? Well, I think you nailed it, Robert, in that it's inspirational, right? I feel 
absolutely fortunate to work for an organization, a company like Esri that has leadership like Jack and Laura that place that kind of emphasis on our natural landscapes and for the future, right? It's a true blessing to be able to work with folks like that, right? And fortunately, living in California, there's actually a lot of folks like Jack and Laura out there with the means to make similar conservation contributions. And that's a really exciting thing. But now for folks like myself, right, there are things that we can do as well, like Jack had just pointed out, that the little pieces also add up, and that's what it's really going to take. So folks that own a couple acres, that own 100 acres, through things like conservation easements, they can make the decision um, to protect portions of it. And as you have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of individual property owners doing that, you start to get to some really intriguing land area that starts to make a difference. And it's going to take all of that. Can you talk a little bit about remediation? Of Are there certain places where you just think, oh, this egregious error has been made and now we need to get back to even just zero before we can actually have sort of a conservation effort in that in that place? Or is there anything where you are like, oh, that's a black eye? So certainly landscape restoration, rehabilitation is a central element of this as well, right? Mm -hmm. That we all know that there are lands um, throughout the country and in California that are severely degraded. And um, that has a negative impact on the people that live there as well as the plant and animal species we aim to protect. So certainly that has a, a role to play as well. Um, it's really that rehabilitation, restoration within the context of also protecting those areas that haven't been degraded to that degree that really starts to build the full conservation picture. It's not just protecting those lands that have yet be touched. It's not just rehabilitating those lands that have been degraded. It's all of those things together. Ultimately, it isn't just plants. It's ultimately getting the sense and the spirit of it in every individual. <laughs> That's ultimately what it gets to. So that people are not putting their footprint down on on and destroying things more. We got to own it, just like we finally own, uh, or most of us own, the idea of COVID this year. So yeah. being able to own own biodiversity conservation at that scale is uh, is coming, and we need to work hard on that. Well, we certainly want to do any and everything we can to be part of the uh, thirty by thirty uh, initiative. Again, you know, it, it, it's really interesting, uh, sirs, to see you at this point in history with the opportunity and the leverage that you have. And uh, I just want to make sure I want everyone in the audience to know that we're going to string out the entirety of our talk with Jack and Ryan because you're going to really want to hear all of this. Of course, in our shorter media piece, we'll just give you uh, kind of the highlights. And uh, we're going to stay in touch. I consider that my invitation to the Redlands is still open. I guess the interview, I'm hoping, went well enough for that. And we'd love to do something when uh, time, energy, and circumstances permit to come see you in situ and get to know both of you better. So I, I really want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for coming in on a weekend. That's our team motto. We work weekends. And and Godspeed to you, sir. Send our best to uh, Laura, your... Uh, your compatriot and uh and ryan don't be surprised if we follow up because we did not get to pick your brain anywhere near enough and you're going to be right. welcome to go out to the preserve as we talked about earlier yes you'll be blown away it's really something else thank you thank you thank you